Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu and welcome to the official MSA National Podcast. Today, we have a super, super, super exciting topic that I'm sure all of you guys are really, really going to enjoy and find value from. And we have a special guest, Brother Umar Osman. Brother Umar Osman works professionally as a technology consultant and is a certified project manager and leadership trainer. He is a founding member of Qalam Institute and has served in different leadership capacities with numerous local and national Islamic organizations. He is a khatib in his local community and teaches regularly around the country on topics of leadership, social media, and conducts public speaking training. He is also the author of book, he is also the author of the book, Fiqh of Social Media, and you already know we're going to be talking about that as well. So without further ado, I'm humbled and honored to introduce Brother Umar. Thank you so much for joining us today. Ajzaklukha for having me. Of course, of course. So, so Brother Umar, I, I kind of want to start off by just kind of asking you, right? Starting off, but just kind of asking you, how has technology played a role in your life? And how did you get involved with such prestigious organizations, mashallah, Muslim Matters, Qalam, etc.? Would kind of love to learn a little bit about that. Yeah, so I've, you know, I've always been kind of IT oriented. Um, I'd be playing around with websites and things like that, even through middle school and high school, learning things like HTML programming, all that good stuff. And, you know, I think just kind of as a natural progression, as I started to get more involved in Islamic activities, right, whether it was at college, whether it was helping to organize classes in my city, technology started to play more and more important role, you know, just as people started to put more information up on the web, people started to use their phones to communicate out information with one another. Online websites started to be started to replace books and stuff almost in a sense that that's where people went to get information. And so being a little bit more IT inclined, having a little bit of that experience, uh, Alhamdulillah, just opened an opportunity for me to be able to volunteer. So whether it was like something like Muslim Matters, you know, uh, that started out because I had my own blog and I was writing articles and it was like, hey, do you want to do this for a larger project? Oh, and you know how to make websites. We need help with making the website, right? So it's little things like that. Uh, you know, even with Qalam, uh, Sheikh Abdul Nasser has been my local imam since the late 90s. Right. And so even while he was studying in Pakistan and coming back, he was, you know, he was the guy that I was praying Tarawi behind in Ramadan. And so that was just a natural progression of, hey, you know, let's do something bigger. And obviously he has the Islamic credentials and skill set and teaching and knowledge and all those things. And I was like, hey, well, you know, I can offer, I've been working on some of these things. I kind of have a good feel for how to set up the online presence, how to maybe try to reach a wider audience, things like that. So that IT skill set ended up being, you know, a natural fit with a lot of these types of projects. Mashallah, mashallah, that's amazing. And may Allah reward you for, for all that you do. Um, so, so you kind of mentioned like you, you know, as you've been navigating uh, or being a part of this realm of technology for, for a big part of your life, uh, I would like to kind of transition and kind of ask you, how have you noticed social media essentially change or kind of bring about or technology change, if you will, and gradually move into the social media, which we all know today? Yeah, so it's changed rapidly in a very short amount of time. 
So I went to college in the early 2000s. Yep. Um, I graduated like December of 04, something like that. So it's not, you know, I'm not a dinosaur, but it's at the same time, it feels ancient because when I went to college, we, you know, we didn't, taking a laptop to class wasn't really normal. We still took notebooks, took notes by hand. And if we needed a computer, we had literally went to the computer lab and then checked out a computer and worked from there. That was the normal way of doing things. Taking a laptop to class really wasn't common. And it was actually kind of a nuisance because whoever brought a laptop, they had to find an outlet and plug it in. Classrooms weren't set up to accommodate it. So it was quite a bit different in that sense, right? We still used email and those types of things. But again, you went to the computer lab to check your email and respond to emails. Yep. That wasn't very long ago. You know what I mean? Um, and then with the smartphone, I think that changed things up quite a bit because now all the stuff that you were accessing online and there was social media even before the smartphone, right? Like there were things like MySpace, there, you know, people had Facebook accounts, all of those types of things, but the smartphone really accelerated all of it. And then over time, other technologies come into play, like Twitter comes around, YouTube has its little evolution group chats, you know, WhatsApp and all these little app, you know, all these apps, they start to gain prominence. And so over time, the more apps that are introduced, each app takes on its own culture, its own method of content creation, the way that we interact with those apps changes. And so it's a natural evolution. If you take Facebook, for example, when you when it first rolled out, you had to have a college.edu email address to sign up. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's funny now because now when I see my Facebook memories from like five years ago or seven years ago, yep. it's comical because the things that I posted on Facebook, I would never post on Facebook now. You know, I would post pictures of, let's say things with like my kids or post like a photo album from a trip or something like that, right? That things that no one would really use Facebook for anymore, but that was the common way of using it. But its use has evolved. One large trend that I've seen. And I think this really started maybe with Snapchat, but it's to that point where before people use social media to broadcast everything to everyone. And with Snapchat, there was a normalization of the idea that, hey, you can post something and let it disappear. Mm -hmm. Or you can post something and you don't want to broadcast it to everyone. And I think people naturally wanted to do that anyway. But now that the technology enabled it, that took on the primary use because people don't want to leave that footprint. And yeah. so now, you know, for example, I use Instagram. I post on my stories and let them expire after 24 hours much more often than I'll actually post a photo that stays on my profile. Right. Yeah. Because I prefer the use case of this is temporary. I don't want to leave that breadcrumb there for the next 10 years. And so that's been one of the evolutions. I think that's a little bit of a positive, a positive evolution. And again, this has all happened, you know, that's probably only happened in the last three, four, five years at most, right? And so wow. it's going to continue to evolve as well. Yeah, yeah. SubhanAllah, I appreciate that. And and just as you were kind of talking about all that, I was just kind of doing a reflection on, on, on how I've seen things change. And it's crazy because I was in college maybe like six years ago. And even then, 
not every student had laptops in class. Uh, of course, we, we may have had our phones with us and things like that. But when I flash forward to now, it's not even at the college level. I'm seeing, you know, my wife, she teaches elementary school and these kids have laptops. And it oh, just, yeah. it's just mind blowing, subhanAllah, how, how it's like integrated into everyone's daily lives. Yeah, I mean, my kids have Chromebooks and tablets, you know, uh, in elementary school. It's, it's the standard way of doing things now. Wow. Wow. SubhanAllah. Uh, well, well, Brother Omar, so I actually have, you know, a, a good bunch of questions that I want to hear your thoughts, but I think uh, it would be more central if we kind of just learn a little bit about the book that you've written, because some of these questions are derived from there. And I think uh, given your expertise, it would be really, really good to know the, the reasoning of why you felt the need to make a book like this, which is so beneficial, inshallah. So kind of talk to me a little bit about the book you writ, uh, you've written, Fiqh of Social Media, why you've done it, and then we can kind of delve a little bit deeper and give some practical questions that I think could be beneficial to all of us and all the students across the globe. Sure. So. You know, like you mentioned, working with Muslim Matters and Kalam and other organizations, it put me in a position where I was dealing very heavily with the social media from an organizational perspective, right? Not my personal perspective. And so, whereas personally, maybe I, you know, I have a limited number of connections, organizational pages are much larger. And so you deal with a lot more comments, you deal with a lot more, there's just a lot more attention put on those pages, right? And so even if people aren't commenting directly, they're sharing something from your organization, commenting on it elsewhere, taking screenshots and forwarding it around, right? There's a lot of discourse that happens around what people see on social media. Yep. And the way that social media drives those conversations, right? Like the a debate in someone's Facebook comments even today is drastically different than if those same two people or three people went out to dinner. They could be talking about the same topic, but the nature of the conversation would be much different. And so I just started noticing a lot of just things, for lack of a better term, of the way people were talking. Right? Like one example is the idea of the shame grenade that people would say like, oh, you know, make the offer Palestine and someone would come back and say, well, what about Kashmir? What about Syria? Like, as you know, as if making the offer one country is somehow ignoring everybody else. Right. And these types of little things just worked their way into the discourse and became normal. And I was like, man, no one is really talking about how we talk about things on social media. And so I started just, again, just uh, almost an experiment. I was like, okay, let me compile a little 40 hadith on social media thing where I connect, I mean, quite literally Sunday school level Islam to the internet. You know, something as basic as, uh, be careful of the company that you keep and connecting the dots and saying, well, the people that you follow online is also the company that you keep. It's not just the company that you keep physically or in real life. Right. And Alhamdulillah, that little, that PDF, that little ebook got a lot of traction. And so then I started writing about it more in depth. And as I started writing about it more communities, naturally started reaching out saying, hey, do you mind coming and doing a presentation on this in our community? I had actually never, that was never a plan. That was never a goal that I'm going to go take this and start speaking in communities about it. But the alhamdulillah, the work resonated and people just reached out on their own initiative and said, we'd like you to come talk about this. And so that process started and for about the last four or five years, alhamdulillah, I've gone all around the country delivering 
family night presentations on social media. So again, understanding these basic concepts, how we can apply basic Islamic principles to our interactions, and then the culmination of those of those visits of the conversations around it that I had with people in those communities that formed the crux of essentially what became the book. Wow. Wow. Subhanallah. That, that is awesome. Awesome. And, and I guess I just want to go dive right in now and yeah. I guess maybe uh, surface like two high level questions, inshallah, and then we can kind of start, uh, you know, going in depth into both of them. Right. So I guess kind of at a high level. Right. What have you noticed? are some of the pros of social media and then some of the harms that you've noticed over the years and obviously that you're starting to see more and more and then we can kind of go deeper into it. So the biggest pro, and I, for me this is hands down, is you know we know the Islamic emphasis on maintaining family ties. Yep. And I firmly believe that social media has made it much easier to maintain family ties in a way that prior to, you know, look, even when we had text messaging and you had, you had to pay for text message, you had to pay for international text messages, right? It wasn't free. So we would go down to like the Desi grocery store on the corner, buy a calling card for like 20, 30 bucks. And then you call overseas like once a month, every two months and you talk for like 17 minutes before it cuts off, right? So it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, overwhelmingly hard, but it also wasn't super easy to stay in touch with people, right? Even in even in the US, you know, cell phone plans as of a couple of years ago, US calling wasn't free. And so even calling someone in another state required, yes, not a whole bunch of planning, but a little bit of planning, a little bit of effort. Now all those barriers have been eliminated. And I think many families have a family group chat. You know, they have like, like we have an immediate family group chat, right? Yeah. With our relatives that all live, you know, here in the same city. And then we have an extended one that has relatives from, you know, in Pakistan and across the country and so on, right? And so those things really do facilitate keeping in touch with family and main and strengthening family ties. So for me, that's the largest positive, right? Like you can, you can pick up your phone and FaceTime someone and help build that relationship. Whereas previously you couldn't do that. Uh, yeah. SubhanAllah. Love it. Now in terms of negative, I have to be honest and say in all the research that I did and in writing this book, I tried to maintain as much of a balanced perspective as I could. But I have to say that all the research that I did, and most of it was from non-Muslim sources, the overwhelming conclusion essentially was there's more harm than good, and we're all better off staying off of it. Now, that's not an easy message to convey uh, because people aren't going to leave it. And, you know, I think that's because, and that's partially because of the negative effects, right? That there's these things like self-validation cycles. It it feeds all the base human emotions that that's kind you know that's the problem of it whatever it is that you're seeking whatever it is that you need for your validation you're going to find it so if you just want attention there's 101 million ways to get attention if you want validation you can go and comment and join groups and find places where thousands of people will validate and like everything that you have to say so all those, you know, basic things that people want, like those things are there. It's just a problem of 
lack of moderation, lack of limits. And it's just very easy to go off the deep end on a lot of those things. Yeah, subhanAllah. You know, I, I really appreciated how you said uh, lack of limits. And I think, as you mentioned, right, like, you know, it, to say get off social media, it, it's likely that that's not going to happen. And I really appreciated in your book how it was kind of like a, a toolkit on how to navigate life on social media while maintaining that decorum, uh, if you will, maintaining like that, that, that guide on how to navigate it in a way, hopefully, that really limits some of those harms. And when you mentioned, yeah, all you. I'll say, and, and I'll tell you one thing, you know, I remember uh, one particular, I don't remember when it was, it was a couple of years ago. I was giving khutbah at my masjid and it was, it was a major holiday, like spring break or Thanksgiving break or something like that. Yep. And, you know, I'm, this was a masjid I gave khutbah in once a month. And so I knew the audience very well. I've been at that masjid for years. Like it's my community. Like I know the people there. Right. And so I made a conscious decision. I said, you know what, I'm going to address social media in detail in this khutbah. And I knew that a lot, you know, some of the uncles, some of the aunties that are regulars, that it wasn't necessarily going to resonate with them because it, this wasn't a problem that they deal with. But I was like, you know what, that's okay. I'll, you know, I got them next month, right? I'll give them something they need next month. Right now we got a holiday, we got all the kids, I'm gonna talk about social media. Yep. So after the khutbah was over, one of you know, one of the uncles, one of the family friends, he came to me, he's like, Omar Beta, you know, wonderful khutbah, blah, blah, blah. And I was just thinking in my head, I'm like, uncle, you don't even know what Facebook is. you like, you know, you can barely operate your phone. I was like, and I was curious, I'm like, uncle, what did you like about this khutbah? I didn't think that you use social media. And he goes, no, but of course I don't use social media. He goes, my kids use it. And he goes, and a lot of the things that they do or a lot of the things that I've observed, not that his kids do, but a lot of things that I've observed make me very uncomfortable. And I haven't known how to discuss this issue with my kids. But when you talked about you know, X, Y, Z in your khutbah, that gave me something I can go home with and talk to my kids about. And that for me set the blueprint because those things that he mentioned were not things that I was thinking about, right? This was very much a case of he got benefit from what I said that I wasn't intending, you know, like, alhamdulillah, like, but I took that feedback and I was like, okay, let me build on this. And that's, that's where, and I'm glad that you said toolkit because that's where that idea came from was having a toolkit that gives people an excuse, right? Like the book should be an excuse to have a family conversation. Yeah. The book can be an excuse to sit down and be like, you know what, I am going to unfollow a bunch of people or I'm going to set this limit. It yep. just provides a little bit of a catalyst to start that discussion. I love it. And, you know, I want to be completely transparent with everyone listening, right? Uh, you know, social media has been a huge part of my life and it's actually how I earn an income for my family, like literally being on social media uh, a lot, uh, you know, for, for different organizations, etc. And, you know, what's crazy is maybe a year or so ago, it could have been a little bit, you know, earlier, Apple, I'm, I'm, I'm an iPhone uh, user, they released screen time. And I remember when I first saw it for the first time, I was completely shocked to see how much time I spend a day on my iPhone. And, and so as I ask these questions, I'm literally asking for myself first and foremost, uh, how can we limit that? Because yeah, we, we use social media, we may continue to do so. But I think all of us, when we see those big numbers, and if you haven't, 
do do make make sure you check but i think when we see those hours there's just that innate nature that tells us like that that's a lot like we gotta kind of limit that so what are your thoughts on that and how to kind of start slowly decreasing that time so on my phone i have i have a whole page that has my social media apps on it and at the top of that page is a screen time widget wow and so every time I scroll over to open Instagram, I have this thing glaring at me saying like, you have used your phone for this many hours a day or this many hours today, right? Um, normally, I think that would work. Now that we're in a pandemic and quarantining at home, it's a little bit more difficult, obviously. Uh, but it, you know, but to your question in terms of how we can start limiting time, you know, I, honestly, that screen time is the first step. That first step is just take an audit of yourself. How much am I using and when am I using it? Right? So if you're awake for 16 hours and your screen time is at 13 hours, then there's probably a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So take an audit of how much you use your phone, take an audit of which apps you're using the most. And then I would say just, you know, there's multiple ways of tackling it. One is that you can, you can create forced downtimes, right? Like, okay, I'm just not going to use it for 30 minutes after I wake up, or I'm going to shut it down at 10 p.m. every night uh, before I go to sleep. You know, there's, there's things like that that you can do. There's maybe it's, hey, we eat dinner from seven to eight. So I'm going to make sure that my phone is off between seven and eight. That's one, one strategy. Another is the another is just the idea of introduce as much friction as possible. Mm -hmm. And that might mean that you throw all the apps to like the 10th page on your phone. And it just makes it annoying to have to scroll over. That's friction. Turning off your notifications, right? Re eliminate the things that make you check it. So don't let the phone beckon your attention. Don't let it buzz and beep and show you a red badge. Turn all that stuff off. So that when you check it, you're just checking it on on your terms. Um, you know, those those are a couple of things. Yeah. The other is just just keep an eye on which ones you're using the most, and maybe set limits. Like, okay, you know, like on for example, on my on my uh, Facebook app on my iPhone, I have a timer that alerts me, "Hey, you spent 15 minutes on this app." Yep, and so. If, if I hit that limit at 10 a.m., then that's a signal to me that I'm wasting my day and I need, to, I need to get in gear and turn that day around. If I see that message at 9 p.m., I'm like, alhamdulillah, did a good job with it today. You know? Um, so, you know, there's little things like that that you can do, but, or delete the app off your phone. Delete Facebook app off your phone. Delete whatever app you're using regularly off your phone and use it from your laptop on the web or even use it on a, on a tablet. But it's just increase that friction, right? Because your chances are your iPad doesn't fit in your pocket and go with you everywhere like your phone does, right? So take it off your phone and leave it on another device. I love it. SubhanAllah. Thank you. That that was that was a lot of value. MashaAllah. Uh, kind of going deeper into your book, uh, Brother Omar, uh, one thing that really uh, stood out to me, and it's something that I'm sure I, I didn't think about personally, and I'm sure a lot of us may not have either. You mentioned the, the two words called small glances. And 
essentially, you know, you were referring to like some of the people we follow. And sometimes we follow a bunch of people, may, may it be celebrities, athletes, etc. Uh, kind of go into that, right? Because of course there may be some benefit, but then those small glances of things that may not be of benefit and how that can affect our hearts, how that can affect us. So kind of talk a little bit about that because that really stood out to me because I'm following celebrities and things like that. And that, that was a huge eye-opener for me. So I'd love some, some insight on that. Yeah, so, you know, I'll tell you what's interesting. When when I was a kid, uh, you know, I used to watch the games with my dad, right? Football games, basketball games, whatever. Like, that was our thing. We'd sit down and watch the game together. Yep. And anytime a beer commercial came on, he would tell me to close my eyes and not watch it. And then when it was over, he'd be like, okay, and he goes, he goes, and he kind of essentially explained, like, I want you to understand that this stuff is here but you have to make a conscious effort to avoid it because you don't want that affecting you because it's like the more that you watch those ads, the more that you're going to want to drink, right? Because that's literally how they're engineered. They're engineered to make you want to buy it. They spend millions and millions of dollars figuring out the psychology of how to make you buy that thing and drink it. Right? So he's like, learn to avert your attention away from it when it comes on because it's bad for you. I'm like, okay, that lesson really stuck with me. And it, it resonated with me a few years ago when, you know, when DJ Khaled was at his height of social media popularity and, you know, you're following him and he's doing his whole lion and another one and, you know, all that stuff. He's all that. And, but then he would come in and, and plug his vodka company, right? And do the sponsor post for the vodka company. And, and he kept doing it more and more. And, and I just, and, uh, something eventually clicked and I was like, this is, this is the modern day beer ad. The modern day beer ad is not the one on TV because now when it comes on TV, we fast forward it or pause it or mute it or whatever. We're not paying it. We're not glued to the TV. Like we used to be. I was like, this is the modern beer ad. This is the thing that I have to fight to keep the influence out. And it's hard because sometimes people are, you know, look, I noticed this yesterday or day before whatever lebron james i follow him on instagram and then he plugs his wine stuff and i really started thinking i'm like should i be following should i mute his stories because i like lebron james i think he's better than michael jordan for whatever that debate is worth. Oh, but, another podcast with um, and i can I, I can defend that we could go we could go a whole hour on on why lebron is the goat but um <laughs> But, but, you know, it, but it, like, I'm like, oh, cool. I, I like following him. I like the stuff that he puts out. But then should I be allowing the messaging of that wine to enter into my mental space and my attention, right? That, that's a struggle. And so we have to be very protective of our feed because everything that we consume, everyone that we follow is the company that we keep. And it's going to have an effect on us, whether we realize it or not. SubhanAllah. That's that's so powerful, you know. You know, brother Omar, in your book, which what I really appreciated is like in each chapter, you had something called action steps or action items. That was really cool because now I'm reading, I'm learning about a particular topic, and now I have some homework, 
And, and one of the things you mentioned, and you actually were just talking about this a little bit earlier, you were mentioning like doing personal audits, kind of like just looking at yourself, what you've posted and things like that. And like you even mentioned in the beginning, what I thought about myself first and foremost was just like some of the posts I made on Facebook like six, seven years ago, right? Just when I, when I first downloaded. And I, and, and I knew even then I still have them, but until I saw your action items, I didn't like come up with the intention that Hey, maybe I should go back and just delete them. Like why even have them there? So kind of talk to me about the importance of taking a personal audit, deleting things. If you've shared too much when you were younger, even if you're sharing very personal stuff now, like kind of talk to me about the importance of that personal audit of your social media actions, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea of deleting old things in particular is a very important one because I can't imagine all of my personal growth being documented online, all the mistakes, all the stupid things that I said, being permanently there, you know what I mean? All the dumb things I did as a kid or in high school or whatever, like just somehow living forever online like that, the thought of that frightens me. And yet that is a normal lived reality for many people now. And just from a purely privacy perspective, I would say like, just go back and clean up your also because look, look, look what happens anytime uh, a celebrity gets, you know, like a high profile job, what do people do? They start digging through their tweets and they find something from 10 years ago yep, yep. and use that to destroy the person. And that person might be like, oh man, you know what? I totally forgot that I posted that. And yeah, I think that was stupid. I have grown and evolved as a person. I don't believe that I wouldn't make that same joke now, but it doesn't matter because it's on their account. So just as a protection to yourself, go back and, and do that cleanup. Um, the other aspect of that audit also is, I think going back and looking at what you've, what you've posted, it's just a good way to do a little bit of a self-assessment and see what was I thinking? Where was I at? What types of things that I post and why? And like, you know, sometimes it's very difficult because sometimes you look at it and you realize like, hey, you know what, I was going through a tough time and I dealt with it by posting these dumb things on social media. And maybe that's a good way for me to look at that and understand that this is not how I want to deal with that emotion in the future. And I need to find a different way of handling that, right? Like maybe that, you know, it could be something of that sort, but just going back and looking at why did I do the things that I do, even if it's not terribly in depth, but even a little bit goes a long way. SubhanAllah. Thank you. Transitioning. I wanted to get to like, I guess a, a deeper topic, kind of close to home, if you will, as, as a youth coordinator, I have always received messages like this from, from different youth. And essentially it's regarding the topic of influencer culture and happiness. Right. A lot of people would come to me saying, hey, I follow such and such. And I'm not talking about the, the athletes of the world. Right. It could just be people in the community, maybe micro influencers, maybe, you know, so, so Muslim influencers even as well, who just are portraying a life of absolute happiness and bliss. And then those following some of them would come to me and say he or she is so happy. I'm not happy. And kind of talk to me a little bit about that. I know you mentioned some of that in your book, but happiness, influencer culture, all of that. I would love to kind of hear your thoughts and insights on that. Man, so these are very complex things. I'm going to tackle happiness first. Sure. And then we'll come back to influencer culture. Great. 
one of the most influential books that I read throughout the course of this project was called America the Anxious. Um, I can find the author if you need, but it, essentially the concept of the book was talking about the American construct of happiness and how it's almost a uniquely American phenomenon with this relentless focus on do whatever makes you happy. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to do the things that make you happy. The universe owes you to be happy, right? Yep. And in that book, the author made the case that this is not how anyone in any other country thinks. They don't have this relentless individual pursuit of happiness. It's most people live a more purposeful existence in terms of their family, their community, tying themselves to something larger. And if we take the most basic Islamic approach, we're taught, be good to your family, be a part of a good community, right? Like that is bare bones, basic, a 10 year old understands that concept. And yet, it's so profound, because what it does, is if you live purposefully as a Muslim, and how you interact with your family, how you make sacrifices for your family, or you make sacrifices for the good of your community. All of those things we understand, they serve that purpose, the ultimate purpose of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but in the long run, they grant you contentment. They grant you contentment in the sense that the things that I am doing are fulfilling a purpose larger than myself. Now, the American programming is my purpose is to be happy, which is a very dangerous uh, proposition because it's very fleeting. I don't know what makes me happy, so to speak. And we see examples all around us of people that have the things that should make them happy and that they struggle. They still struggle with extreme types of issues. And so we're chasing this ideal, I feel, that doesn't really exist. And not only does it not exist, but it's something that culturally is programmed into us that's not programmed into people in other nations or other cultures. And so we have to really critically assess where is this messaging coming from and why? And so, because it, look, it does, it sounds good. Yes, you know, Subhan, I want you to be happy. I wish for you to be happy. Be like, yeah, Omar, I want you to do what makes you happy. Like, it sounds like good, but really it's like, it, it's not that simplistic. And so this idea of chasing happiness actually ends up causing people to develop anxiety, to, to get depressed, to get on social media and have very negative consequences on their mental health because they log in and they see a facade of people saying, look how amazing my life is. And then you sit there and you're like, man, why can't I have that? I deserve to have it too. And when I can't get it and I keep trying to get it and I still can't get it, then yeah, I'm going to feel like something's wrong. It's going to affect my self-esteem. It's going to affect my self-perception. It's going to have all, it's going to, it's going to make me develop envy and hasad toward people that appear to have it. There's a lot of dominoes that fall just from that idea of happiness. So that, that, that's one part. The other part is also understanding that what you see is not reality. And intellectually, it's an easy concept to grasp, but in practice, it's hard because if you envision someone, let's say, that's struggling to get married, they've been trying to get married for like four or five years, 
And now every time they log on, they log on Instagram, they see, oh, this friend just got married. Look, wedding photos. Oh, honeymoon photo from the beach with the heart in the sand and their toes pointed at the sunset. And oh, this person just had a baby. And they, they see everyone around them celebrating these occasions of happiness, a wedding, the birth of a child, a baby shower, uh, this thing, uh, that thing. And they're sitting here like, why can't I have that? I deserve to have it too. And it, and it makes a person get down on themselves. But one other thing to un understand, especially when it comes to influencer culture in particular, is, I mean, and I hate picking on people, but I think sometimes it's warranted is just so much of it is staged and fake. And there's just no getting around it. The people that are selling you hustle culture and this entrepreneurship thing and driving these flashy cars, they're renting those cars. They don't own those cars. They are, they are trying to create a lifestyle image, hoping that a sucker will buy it and then end up allowing them to actually buy it themselves. You know, they're because they don't actually have it. And the reason that those things take off is because people who are down, you know, facing hard times, they just they follow it in hopes that they'll get to be like that, not necessarily recognizing that this isn't reality. Wow. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. So, so deep, so deep. You know, I think, you know, in, in the brief time we were chatting today, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about, you know, some of the positives of social media. And I'm sure we can all agree of all of those. And we all use and, and benefit from some of those positives, family groups, etc. Now we talked about some of the harms as well. You know, I think when reflecting upon those harms, obviously, I, I would hope that the natural uh, inkling that all of us have is, you know, hey, I when we all reflect inwards, hey, I have to improve. This is something that I know I can improve if I follow correct guidelines and things like that. And, and to kind of end this podcast episode, there's no better time to improve than, of course, during the blessed month of Ramadan, which is so close now. Right. So. With Ramadan so close to us now, how would you advise all of us listening, myself first and foremost, to kind of prepare and essentially be in, in the month of Ramadan with limited social media usage if need be and really just have a, a blissful month and even obviously weeks leading to it where we can have a, a deeper relationship and bond with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Kind of give us some advice on how to navigate the, you know, the, this journey, if you will, leading to Ramadan? Yeah, so I appreciate this question. And what's interesting is, or maybe challenging is as of now, today, February 12th, that we're recording, it appears that most likely we will not have a normal Ramadan this year again, right? It the way that it looks, it looks like we probably aren't going to be back to normal, you know? Yeah. And so that introduces a different challenge. And that complicates things in this sense, right? That the traditional advice of, hey, cut down your social media as much as possible is going to be a little bit tougher because we aren't going to be getting the community feel that we normally would by going to the masjid or by normally meeting our friends. And so we are going to need some of that online community, so to speak, to a certain degree. 
And so it it's going to require a lot of intentionality and a lot of and even some degree of planning as to how I'm going to maximize this month. I would say that from now, you know, six to eight weeks leading in Ramadan is make your plan from now as to what it is that you want to get out of it. What is your what is your number one focus? Is your number one focus to read the Quran cover to cover one time? Is it read the Quran cover to cover two times or five times? Is it that this is the Ramadan that you're going to read the Quran cover to cover with a translation? Maybe it's reading a tafsir book. Maybe there's a series of tafsir lectures that you have been wanting to go through. Maybe it's doing all of those things plus listening to the recitation of the Quran on recording from cover to cover, right? Like there's a number of different goals and things that we can want to do. And I, and I would suggest obviously keeping them all Quran oriented since it is the month of the Quran. But make that plan from now and say, what is the one non-negotiable thing that I have to complete this month, right? Yeah. And so make sure that you take care of that first. Now with the social media stuff, I would say just be very careful about what you're going to do. And before the month starts, everyone is going to start posting their programs like, hey, every night we're doing a halakha on this, or every night we're going to be releasing a video about this. And they're all and they're going to be coming from amazing speakers and Islamic organizations who are doing very good work, right? This is I I, I don't mean to belittle or diminish any what anyone is producing because it's all good, beneficial material. What I want people to understand is that you can't follow all of them, right? Just because organization A and organization B and organization C and, and famous speaker X and famous speaker Y and famous speaker Z are all putting out Ramadan series, it is not going to be feasible for you to keep up with all of them. Yep. So I would suggest that you pick one. Pick one thing that you are going to follow throughout the month. And maybe that's the one thing that you catch on the live broadcast. And if you miss a live broadcast, you catch up on the recording. But find one thing that you commit to and let that be your, you know, replacement, so to speak, of missing out on the nightly halakha at the masjid, assuming that we can't go. Um, so take advantage of social media in that way. But the reason I talked about that non-negotiable item is... And this is tough because under normal circumstances, I would say, hey, you know what, just delete your social media apps for the month and then reinstall them after after Eid. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, but this month is granted is going to be a little bit harder and we're going to be craving that because Ramadan is the time that even if we don't feel the community throughout the year, Ramadan, we step it up and we meet people, we go to their houses, we, you know, we accelerate that socialization. And so I, I understand that we're going to have this extra desire to connect with people and talk with people. That's fine. I would suggest that you make sure that your non-negotiable items of what you're doing for your personal worship in that month are met first before you, before you open up that Pandora's box of your phone. And so if your personal daily requirement is reading one juz, finish your one juz for the day before you get on Instagram, before you open up WhatsApp and get into your group chats and all those things. And, uh, and by the way, maybe one, uh, you know, for people that are in a lot of group chats, this might be a, a good way of maybe, you know, finding a middle path in some of this is 
exit your group chats for the month of Ramadan and then rejoin them after. Mm. Just try to minimize as much of the noise as you can, right? Because yes, yeah. yeah, some group chats are with friends and maybe those are useful and you want those, but we all have a bunch of group chats that aren't, right? So maybe exit those for the month of Ramadan. What you want to get done, inshallah, in terms of religious work first, reading Quran, etc., and then go on social media. I thought that point was, was amazing, mashallah, because sometimes what we would do social media first, and then yeah. we would just be in that, that loophole for hours and hours and hours, and then push the Quran, etc., for the next day, right? So, subhanallah, yeah. I love that. To get it done. Exactly. Subhanallah, I love it. I love it. Well, well, Brother Umar, you know, I wanted to thank you so much for, for all of your time. And as we do with all of our other episodes, kind of want to just end it on a fun light note. We just ask a couple of fun questions at the end of every episode. So just want to okay. ask you a couple of rapid fun questions, if that's okay with you, just to kind sure. of uh, lighten it up before we uh, call it a day, inshallah. All right, cool. So number one, I know you're a huge book fan. What is your favorite book? Oh, man. <laughs> I don't have a favorite, but I will say maybe the book. Wow. Which you Depends what subject almost. All right. One that's jumping out to me is having had the most uh, impact on my approach to, let's say, organizations and even leadership is Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Love it. SubhanAllah. Awesome. Okay, cool. Number two, once this pandemic is over. Where's your like go-to place to travel to, inshallah? Uh, Toronto. Love it. What's your favorite food? Chicken wings. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> any any specific flavor? Uh, spicy buffalo, spicy barbecue, lemon pepper. Yeah, those those are my three go-tos. Cool. Love it. Okay. Favorite basketball team and favorite basketball player? Rockets, Olajuwon. Oh wow, <laughs> you were quick, mashallah. I grew I grew up in Houston in the Olajuwon era. Like there's, it, that seals the deal. Yeah, yeah, you got to see them win the championship. So that that's awesome, mashallah. Okay, cool. This is the last one. It's gonna be a little bit deep though, but I but I wanted to end off with this one because I think this is this. I, I myself personally would love to to hear your answer for this and benefit from it. If you can go back in time and give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Mm. Uh, the advice that I would give my younger self if I could go back in time would be to ooh, I hope this doesn't come across in a weird way but it would be to quit or leave toxic situations particularly like work situations uh, much quicker than I did Subhanallah, powerful, love it. Well, well, brother Omar, before we end off today's episode, do you have anything else to share? Any closing words or anything like that? Uh, no, I would just, uh, if you enjoyed the episode, uh, I would just ask people to join my email list at ibnabiomar.com slash newsletter, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Well, everybody listening, inshallah, will be sure to place the appropriate links that Brother Omar mentioned. Of course, the link to his book and everything else in the description. May Allah reward all of you guys for listening and may Allah reward Brother Omar for joining us today. Please leave your questions in the comment section, inshallah, and we can definitely try to answer as best as we can. May Allah reward all of you guys and we'll see you guys on the next episode of the MSA National Podcast.